You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. I'm with the second most handsome doctor in the world, um, both with a fresh fade modelled on my spirit animal that you can see behind me. Asif, welcome to the Propane Podcast. Thanks for coming on. So thank you. It's been it's been a pleasure chatting to you over the last few months, and I, I, actually I've been in contact with you for the last few years. So I think 2014 when when I got married, I didn't message yourself and Johnny regarding getting me into shape, and as you can see, it has worked wonders. So oh man! Well, you, you you put in all the work. It was we were just uh, telling you what to eat, but <laughs> but yeah. That's really that's when my um, <clears throat> relationship started with propane guys. So fantastic, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've been a big fan of the years. You know, you've had some great guests, and I hope I can do you some justice and give your listeners some value. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, yeah, that that's like back in the the golden age and it's also great to uh to see that you've yeah you fit in this talk before actually filming for a bbc documentary you said too that's right yeah so uh, i've been contacted by bbc stories to do just a bit of a, a fact checking um exercise really uh, on a recent documentary they're doing regarding um cryptoheptidine which is a anti-allergy sample essentially but it's been used in america by lots of influencers to, um, well, female influencers really, to put on some weight around their, um, their curves, so to speak, humps and bumps. So it's an anti-allergy tablet. As you know, anti-allergy tablets cause sedation. Um, you know, the ones you get from boots can cause um, uh, you know, sedation and sleepiness. But this one does that as well. But when you wake up, apparently, it stimulates the appetite. So it has been used by vets in the past to um, stimulate appetite in cats who are you know, rather ill and frail, um, so it's been used by certain influencers in America to put on, you know, to get lean in the gym firstly, you know, diet and nutrition, as we know, is very important, but to, you know, to put on weight around the right areas, some of these so-called influencers are using the kind of pseudoscience and quackery to um, abuse this drug, so basically, so, I've got to be recently to... So, what the, so this is a, a veterinary... Um, mm. Antihistamine <clears throat> that they're using I, to use it as well. Yeah, so it's the cryptoheptidine. Um, the name is uh, amphetin. it's called. Uh, active ingredients in cryptoheptidine, but it's got a lot of B vitamins in there as well. Um, uh, essentially, so um, it's it's you know it's used in humans. You know, it's prescribed. It's kind of a third or fourth line antihistamine after cinnazine and cetirizine and you know depiratine, etc. It, it is used, but certainly not the first choice for most doctors in the in the country. But it's the first choice for um, a lot of people in the states um, who are now using it um, for these aforementioned benefits. But in the UK, it's gaining a bit of traction in the black market, hence why I think BBC were quite interested in a documentary. And this is something people are using to get that booty just by like increasing their appetite. Is there anything it's, specific to like curves, or is it just global weight gain? It is called the global weight gain, but obviously a lot of these girls are super um, fit with their kind of musculature, so they've got very low body fat, so it is putting on fat, but a lot of girls don't realise that, um, you know, you can't get fat in the breasts. You know, mammary tissue, as you know, is different to kind of adipose tissue. That, so that's something, that's just a kind of a, a side as to, you know, black market drugs at the moment, but, you know, main one over the last 20, 30 years 
since the proliferation of bodybuilding with Arnie in the, in the 80s and 70s has been use of what we call AAS, so anabolic androgenic steroids, uh, particularly with the um, last five years where it's just, it's just ballooned with the rise of um, social media and, and reality TV with Love Island and Big Brother and all these kind of things, but people do it a bit more ripped and a bit more toned. Um, so that's been the big black market kind of issue at the moment. So I'm I'm keen to to dive into the different um, kind of sub subcategories of of drugs because I guess like in terms of ergogenic aids that you're talking about, there's a huge range of different classes of drugs that are used for different purposes. And like the one you've just mentioned, I've not even heard of like using an antihistamine to stimulate appetite and get that booty. Like it's uh, is is new to me. Um, just just before we go on, for anyone who doesn't know you, you are Doctor Manaf. What is your what what is your kind of background? Yes, I'm currently a sports medicine registrar in the East Midlands, um, having completed the medical training, um, you know, eight years ago now, 2012, finished my medical school training there. I've trained in a variety of sports uh, and kind of NHS positions, mainly looking at athletes and kind of general well-being and wellness. Um, But my main interest at the moment is uh, I'm going to go part-time to concentrate on my business, which is called Endurance essentially a, a wellness clinic, uh, mainly looking at men's health, doing blood testing and IV vitamin therapy, but also generally looking at people who want to get into better shape. So as doctors, as you you know, will probably agree, we, we are used to treating illness rather than wellness. Um, use of other um, uh, interests in PT, which, which I am as well. So, you know, being a PT, you look at optimizing someone's wellness and general fitness. Uh, whereas... In NHS, you tend to be rather reactive, and that's what medical school teaches you, to react to illness as opposed to being more upstream. So my background, you know, is in medicine, but I did take a year out of med school and did a public health master's, which, you know, certainly equipped me with quite a lot of knowledge and know-how as to preventing illness and maximizing wellness. And one of the biggest things we can do is optimize people's nutrition, you know, make sure they are exercising adequately, and also just generally looking at other deficiencies and dispelling a lot of myths that people are having because people, general population, are very, you know, suggestible to social media suggestions um, with regard to, you know, this drug, that drug will do this and X, Y, and Z. So the clinic involves up to dispelling myths. I think that's such a great initiative because, yeah, exactly, like, it's, there is a curve of, like, you're riding this wave of people being interested in wellness but having to only rely on either marketing from supplement companies or Karen from Facebook who's like an anti-vaxxer and believes that western med- western medicine is a is a scam and 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 there's so because of this asymmetry of information I really feel and like before I started medical training as well like my bullshit alarm was so much less sensitive that you see someone throw out a couple of scientific terminologies and you're thinking like oh my god that that must be right like I've got no metric to compare this against nothing to and and so you end up just being it's not even like gullibility it's just like there people are deliberately misleading you in terms of effects side effects benefits of various diets and supplements and everything and we've got no um kind of intellectual defense to be able to measure that against something objective so i think doing what you're doing with basically a, a accredited medical approval is exactly what people need yeah, no, exactly. And I think it was about time with, you know, the Karen's on Facebook and your Debbie's from mumsnet.com. Uh, we're just, you know, spouting absolute quackery. And it's not just that, it's just the guys in the gym as well, the bro science dudes, the meatheads, you know, the juice heads who are injecting steroids with shared needles. And 
saying this will do this to them and, you know, taking L-carnitine and caffeine supplements, etc., etc., with absolutely zero backing from medical science. And even then, when they are kind of really, um, you know, weak and tenuous scientific studies done, they don't necessarily have the medical or intellectual or even the critical appraisal ability to look at the the you know effect curves and say look actually this is a really poor poorly poorly designed study which has been funded by GSK or by USN Nutrition or by you know Gold's Gym in um, you know in America really so uh, and I think people are buying into stats and buying into curves and graphs without necessarily looking at the side effect profile because you know a lot of these a lot of these meds and supplements do have side effect profiles which it may not be necessarily right for you. Well, people are kind of trapped as well because even if they want to get medically accredited information, they want to go to their GP. Like, particularly in the UK, there is just no support for that. Like, I think in the US, there is a, there is much more of a focus towards yeah, optimizing wellness and health, and m- many more people are on, like, testosterone replacement therapy, or it's much more consumeristic in the way that, like, you go to your doctor and you're like, I want this because I think that I've got this, and they'll be like, all right, we'll do CT, full body, and prescribe you whatever you like. Whereas it does seem like, we're more defensive in the UK, but as a result, we get this, like, so you were saying about, like, the difference between, yeah, like, trying to mitigate illness versus improving performance. Yeah. We, we end up with, like, the fitness industry criticising doctors for, be, I, I saw a tweet this morning that said, doctors are too lazy to give diet advice to diabetics and they don't have, they don't have any recognition of how um, carbs impact diabetes and they don't learn any nutrition. And, and, and it's like, that comes from the perspective of like the doctors are too lazy to do it compared to like the average patient just not being this uber woke twitter warrior that's interested in like binaural beats and infrared saunas and minimizing their hba1c and really all what what they actually want is like doctor don't tell me to stop smoking like i know that i just want the pill that's going to fix it yeah yeah exactly and i think that opens up a a huge gulf there used to be a a small gap, but now I think it's a gulf actually between doctors' knowledge and lack of awareness of, you know, general fitness and well-being, uh, and patients' kind of, uh, you know, miseducation on the internet, and that opens up a big gulf where black markets, uh, you know, black market activities occur um, for all these kind of illicit substances, you know, uh, be it um, the kind of supplements which you, which you don't need or stuff which essentially is, is, is harmful to the kidneys. Like even this morning, I was looking, looking at some blood results of this guy, you know, private blood results, and this guy needs ultrasound scan of his liver because he's almost knackered his liver. And, and previously, from my experience, I've seen bodybuilders have huge clots in their, in their liver, you know, what we call portal bed thrombosis, you know, essentially coming with tummy pain, and their, their blood levels are so high because they've just been abusing steroids for three years on end without cycling, which is what the norm is at the moment. And it's that, so doctors should know about this stuff. Well, it, and, uh, you're right, like, it's the perfect, this gulf is the perfect opportunity for supplement companies and black markets to jump in, because it's like, the doctors are almost, like, if, if you go to the GP and you say, oh, I'm thinking of starting to use steroids, mostly the GP will be like, oh, well, I, think, I don't think you should. And that's the end of the conversation. Most of the GPs will probably think you mean prednisolone for your, for your nose or something, <laughs> steroids. Uh, I, I don't think they have any clue about cycling or... You know, to to use kind of bro, you know, bro terms, you know, gear, juice, whatever you want to call it. Uh, a lot of the guys don't know about that necessarily. You know, that the, the twelve to fifteen week cycles they do, then cruising and then uploading and then back on the juice again. A lot of these terms, which because a lot of GPs and doctors don't go to the gym, and if they do, they they're probably going to do, do you know do a bit cardio. 
um, you know, just to keep up their fitness for the weekend. Um, and, and I think this is a, it's a huge gap. But even in running, you know, because I've worked in Loughborough before, and, you know, even some of the runners are using stuff as well. So, yeah, of course. And, you know, that was well known in the 90s for the cyclists, EPO and autologous blood transfusions. But this, you know, this, there's doping in terms of imagery as well. You know, visual imagery is a form of doping. You've got doping in terms of, you know, Paralympians using carbon fiber, you know, prosthesis, which is knocking off a few milliseconds from their sprint. And there's all sorts of doping, which you wouldn't know about. And that's something I'm very much interested in, educating them about doping, various forms of it. And now we as doctors can certainly educate ourselves about what people are doing because you know a lot of women are buying over-the-counter supplements to lose weight and they're coming in with you know sinus tachycardia and you know SVTs you know essentially for all the all the non-medics out there you know just in dangerous heart conditions um, and they're coming in because they're they're you know using these uh, kind of thermogenic agents to lose weight and it's having a massive effect on their um, on their heart and you can end up dead essentially that's not. interesting so like without closing that gap then <clears throat> you're going to have people saying i have an intention to do this and if the doctor just says don't do this it's not it, like most of the time the patient's not going to be like oh, okay i just won't use steroids they'll be like instead they're going to say well i'm just going to use them but like using the information i found on a bodybuilding forum or just i'm going to go it myself and then they come into the complications that you've talked about, like the, the clots and the tachycardias and, the, you know, the um, arrhythmias and things. So, so yeah, I, I definitely see, like, there needs to be, with this quite new wave of people doing this kind of stuff, there has to be some information that covers that. Otherwise, we're leaving mm-hmm. it entirely to the supplement industry to yeah, pick up that mess. And, yeah, precisely. And, you know, supplement industry is a form of a pharmaceutical industry, industry, isn't it? So their interests are in profit. So, you know, a, a bodybuilder who comes off steroids because he's got a clot is a customer lost. Uh, you know, uh, you know, that's the way, or, or bodybuilder who's, who's, who's had a heart attack or was at a stroke now because of anabolic steroid use and is now in a wheelchair and has stopped using anabolic steroids is now a customer lost. So there needs to be a, a medical kind of, you know, upgrading or upskilling of, of, of the level of knowledge as to what ergogenic aids can do to, um, you know, uh, the human body and physiology. And I think that starts in medical school, you know, because that should be, you know, a compulsory module now. Some of the guys at NutriTank are doing some really good work with the nutrition in the medical school curriculum. So Yusuf, you may have been one of the last ones, I think, to leave medical school with very kind of abysmal knowledge of nutrition which you know which I think you've... I was probably one of the because I only qualified last year so um, maybe it was just my med school but they were pretty good with nutrition and, oh, and metabolism like, so it's um, really good but yeah, yeah because I it... have heard people criticize med schools for, yeah for not covering so it much you must have been the first batch then because you know I think 2012 onwards there was a bit more kind of drive to incorporate that into the curriculum because you're right you know I would say 60-70% of illnesses can be prevented with stress control, with better nutrition, with better you know, exercise uh, regimes as well. And as, as doctors, we don't necessarily learn this in medical school, so we, we become very reactive. And the NHS is a health service, but it's essentially an illness service. It's, an, it's a national sick service, isn't it? So it's, it's NSS, really, because you you know, you're treating sick patients essentially all the time. There's no remit for health. You know, the big part of NHS is the health service, but I think we spend most of our budget fighting complications of diabetes and arthritis and obesity further down the line when all that money, billions of, of pounds you're looking at, could be spent earlier in what we call upstream interventions, 
Oh, it, it really upsets me. Like, there, there's so many examples of this. Like, I've just come off a stroke job. And, yeah, <clears throat> yeah it, in the same vein, there's, there's such a short-termist way of thinking of, like, oh, rather than training more um, interventional radiologists to do thrombectomies to remove the, the clot from, from someone for, from a stroke, instead we, because that's too expensive, we, we just wait for people to have a stroke and we give them aspirin, which has a terrible like really really low no, uh, really high number of people that you need to give aspirin to prevent it's eight in a thousand apparently so you, you give eight people yes. you give a thousand people aspirin prevents eight strokes and the the amount of millions of pounds that's being spent on ongoing care and the disabling effects on the patient for years afterwards compared to just short-term investing more into training more people that can do this procedure and, and actually deal with it at the source um but yeah with things like obesity as well like it's so much more expensive to deal with someone once they're once they're super obese and experiencing the complications than yeah. dealing with it at the source again. But um, yeah. I guess because whoever's in whoever's in power now won't see the fruits of that. It doesn't yeah. um, doesn't make sense for them to invest in uh, in that line. Yeah, certainly. I think you know government terms are very short four years in the, four years in the UK. So. Government, government policy is very short and sharp in terms of its, um, you know, where the money goes to. Uh, and I think these long-term effects, because you're looking at 20 years, so if, if you educate a 8-year-old child about the risks of eating too much, you know, candy and uh, fizzy pop, that effect will bear fruit 30, 40 years later. By that time, the government will be changed. We'll have a different king or queen, you know. Uh, things change rapidly. Um, uh, sorry, uh, you know, uh, physiologically they can t uh, they can change rapidly, but in terms of government's policy, it doesn't bear fruit that quickly. So, uh, all the money and budgetary kind of um, you know focus goes on short-term measures. Uh, you know, waiting time, for instance, we've seen that four-hour waiting times being slashed and being replaced, and a lot of money being spent on kind of you know getting patients home quickly, as opposed to at the other side of the spectrum. You know, younger children who are being miseducated by adverts on TV regarding cereal and sugary drinks, although that has, that has improved after 2018, uh, nevertheless, they are still bombarded with adverts and billboards about, you know, in multinational companies, multi billion dollar companies, who are just, um, you know, propagating high sugar, high calorie foods all the time. So it sounds like the, the, the main thing is that <clears throat> without the medical industry actually taking ownership over not just illness, but over wellness as well, then it's completely left up to the, the whims of the private companies that have their own agendas to, to pursue and aren't, don't really have an aligned um, incentive or aligned agenda to uh, prevent yeah. disease in the future. Um, yes. And this is what, you know, it boggles my mind, like even things like smoking, like why is smoking still legal in 2020? Like it's absolutely ridiculous yeah. like the, i heard a gp about 10 years ago suggest that anyone born after the year 2000 just like we should just introduce a ban for anyone born after the year 2000 so then nobody who's a current smoker has to suffer or has to then suddenly have their their freedom impinged on and anyone who's born in year 2000 onwards like they just won't know any different and there's no reason to continue creating new smokers from now but that yeah. that idea was just like swatted away yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, a lot of the current smokers now who are perhaps in their 50s and 60s and 70s, they were um, of the generation whereby smoking wasn't considered necessarily harmful. Um, but now we know the, the ramifications of smoking in terms of not just, you know, you know, lung disease, but hypertension, diabetes, you know, strokes in the future, 
limb amputations. You know, there's at least 20 conditions which um, can be you know attributed to smoking. You know, throat cancer, mouth cancer, you know, colon cancer as well. You know, looking at long-term risks of smoking, and it it, it is the only poison which is sold. I can't see. I, I don't see any other poison. You know, you're talking about poison here because that is literally poisoning your arteries and your organs from the inside out, it, uh, which is sold legally. It's insane. Like it's it's the only thing like definitively proven to <laughs> to increase death. Like, yeah, it, it is insane. I, um, and we're seeing the the ramifications of that later on. You know, 30, 30, 40 years later, when the lung cancer comes in and they've got a flight to Newcastle for a you know for a lung transplant or. You know, they've got COPD, recurring home oxygen, which is £8,000 a year. Now, this is all NHS money, isn't it? <laughs> which is, you know, it, it's bonkers to think we, we uh, you know, we allow kind of the tobacco uh, tobacco industry, you know, the big farmer essentially, to sit on, you know, kind of lobbying boards and, you know, have, have say in government policy. It is so true. Um, so you, you mentioned before about, like, the, the different kind of range of sports supplements and ergogenic legal and non-legal i suppose like regardless of the legality some of the mechanisms are very similar um i guess it ranges from what we've just said antihistamines to stimulants to appetite suppressants to um, hormone boosters or just pro-hormones or hormones themselves can you talk us through like some of the most common ones that you see um in your clinical work and like and what what we have to kind of contend with in terms of supplements and new stuff that's coming out yeah, so I think going back to going back to the first point about what's the kind of stuff I see. So majority of my work is in men's men's health. So I see a lot of anabolic steroid users, and that's not just the guys who are competing, which used to be the case thirty years ago. The guys who were competing, you know, the, the Dorian Yates, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they were the guys who had the sole kind of um, you know a remit towards these um, medications, which were, which were very hard to get by because you have to get them from. You know, they were, they were usually from from horses, so equine steroids. They were purified and put in an injectable form, and then they were shipped to, from Germany to Austria to UK. But now they're available across the UK. Uh, in most gyms, in most gyms, you will see guys using them. So that's the majority of the things I see. So AAS, anabolic androgenic steroids, which essentially stimulate what we call protein syn- synthesis in the PMB. You know, um, sorry, uh, protein muscle synthesis. Um, um, in kind of guys who use them, um, that's one of the things. So, for, for, essentially, for growth, we see growth hormone as well. So, growth hormone either injections and people are taking tablets, which they can buy over the counter, well, from from pharmacies online. You know, I'm not sure of the efficacy of a kind of tablets, but people have used them for. You know, if if you, uh, you know, it, you know, it, for example, dwarfism or kind of early closure of the uh, epiphysi. Uh, uh, epiphyses, which are the growth plates. So, for, for instance, Lionel Messi, the famous footballer, you know, he used growth hormone. You know, his parents paid for treatment, hence why, because he was very short. He still is now, but uh, you, you can get the medical use of growth hormone, which is a, a you know, a, a, an actual reason. But you can get the abuse of growth hormone just to put on mass and size, what they call hypertrophy, uh, bodybuilding circles. So that's kind of two of the main ones. There's also um, you know, testosterone patches and gels, which are quite um, quite common. So, testoderm, um, um, you know, testogel, another one which people use. You can put it on the mouth, put it on the arm, which is absorbed slowly. So, people do that three times a day. The testosterone tablets people take as well. Um, again, that's kind of the th- three most common ones. And, and, you know, that's 
to build muscle or to build aggression, to build kind of a competitive edge, which will allow you to lift more. If you lift more, you get stronger, so the theory goes, and then you can build more muscle. The other one which I see a lot as well is not just being big and having a combination of fat and muscle, it's actually having lean muscle. So a lot of bodybuilders are using in between cycles of of, uh, of bulking when they're on a cut, so to speak, you know, four to eight weeks before a competition, they're using uh, medications to lose fat and lose water, really. So there's all sorts of diuretics, what we call the medicine, you know, something to you know remove excess salt and excess water from the body. Um, some bodybuilders are, you know, um, being rather clever and using certain diuretics like potassium sparing diuretics, like spironolactone, which actually retains potassium in the body, hence to get more muscle definition. Uh, so bodybuilders are, you know, all these one step ahead of doctors. If you, if you spoke to your, your usual doctor about spironolactone, yeah, you know, sure, sure, he, he'll tell you the dose, 25, 50 milligrams, but he wouldn't know why it's being used in bodybuilders. I wouldn't so, touch spironolactone with a with a barge pole personally, but yes, exactly, you know. it's used in heart failure and it's used in you know, alcoholic liver disease. But um, uh, you know, bodybuilders are using it now. Bodybuilders are using laxatives just to literally get rid of any excess. You know, abdominal distension they may have before competition. They're using, you know, uh, melanocyte kind of uh, um, stimulators, MSH stimulators, uh, you know, such as a, um, a melanotan, which is, you know, intramuscular injection to make their bodies a bit more toned pre-competition. There's also use of thyroxine, especially in the lady bodybuilders, to up their metabolism and, and lose weight. Uh, there's there's use of caffeine as, as well, you know. Prior to workout, and um, it is allowed obviously by the Dwader as well, but it's uh, more than 400 micrograms, which is eight cups of coffee. You can't have more than that because then it becomes a class of you know, uh, class as doping, really. Um, sorry, Yusuf, I'm going through a little spiel here. No, I mean, this it, it's just insane. Like, the number, even just from the drugs you've mentioned there potassium mm. sparing diuretics, uh, pro hormones, thyroxine. Um, laxatives, caffeine, like the number of mechanisms that all of these drugs like play with is insane. And these are all things that are mediated by negative feedback where like you, you, you know, you introduce a huge amount of exogenous hormone and then you're just completely buggering up the, the endogenous production of that going down the line. And it sounds like without the medical field taking ownership over this you've just got individuals that are just they've got the dashboard of their human body and they're yeah. just playing with the knobs doing different things and yeah. not really being aware of the consequence or once they come off what what's to happen um have you seen anybody present to you with hypogonadism so low testosterone following steroid abuse yes yeah, certainly so actually my interest in bodybuilding came about similar to yours in, in during med school so when i was a fourth year uh, the good Sports Direct um, man mug, the four litre man mug. Oh, the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the best. <laughs> I've got one of them as well. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so when I was a fourth year in, in Hull, which has a, you know, not to kind of um, point fingers or generalise uh, any community, obviously now with the coronavirus that's been in the news with kind of, you know, chastising certain communities, it was just completely wrong. But, you know, I was in Hull, which is a huge Eastern European community, and obviously that is bodybuilding culture. You know, Bulgaria, Arnie's from Austria. There's you know, some big uh, culture in the, East. The, the best weightlifters, and yeah. Oh, yeah, powerlifters are from Bulgaria and Romania, aren't they? And, you know, you've got Scandinavians as well uh, in terms of, of sports strongest man. So it whole out a big community. I was at medical school there, and uh, I, I was doing obs and gynae. So you think, why is, why is obstetrics and gynecology relevant to bodybuilding? But I saw a lot of young men, you know, you know relatively young, 35, 40, 
coming in with infertility, and there had you know uh, this, this is going back to 2010, so a decade ago now. There was very little knowledge about cycling, what people are doing now. So 15-week cycles, um, going off for a few weeks and coming back on it. So they were just on steroids, anabolic steroids, for two or three years constantly. And a lot of the stuff was imported, you know, illegally from Romania and from other parts of Europe, where it's less, where it's more purified, it's actually stronger stuff, really. Um, so they were coming in with infertility. So, you know, male, you know, not just, um, you know, low sperm count, but... Um, kind of abnormal sperm morphology and not just azoospermia which is low sperm count but you know you know um, spermatic dysmotility and all kinds of uh, you know dysfunctional sperm and that was a lot of it was their natural testosterone levels were abysmal so you're looking at two three and four which and it should be minimum nine to ten for a man and if you look at these guys you'd think they're testosterone level will be 20 or 30 because they're they're big they're muscular they're very aggressive but it's coming down at two or three, which is what you'd expect in a thirteen-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So, so really, then, like, yeah, they, they've tanked it. And and is is that is that something that's recoverable in fertility clinics? Yes. So you have to be, you know, there's two things here. So what's more important to them? So um, you know that will slowly recover, like anything. You know, essentially, it's a form of. You know, hypogonadism uh, is a adrenal insufficiency. Is the whole hypothalamic pituitary axis is offset? So this is going into complex endocrinology now, but I, w- I wouldn't bore you with that. But it's certainly, it can recover, okay? And it will recover by itself. And it's better to let it recover by itself. If you're giving testosterone to boost a, a very low testosterone in someone who's effectively crashed with steroid use, you're just delaying the onset of their recovery. So you so- have to let it go. This is what kind of scares me that, yeah, you've got like, you've got the panel of different hormones. And as you said, you've got the whole hypothalamic pituitary axis that regulates all of the hormones. And yet somebody's gone in and just modulated one of them or just turned one of them way up. And so if the rest of them go out of kilter or if they've then got a problem, it's like trying to replace the individual hormones may still not. Co- so I, I guess this is um, presumably this is why there's a higher incidence of depression and mental health issues. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know about Addisonian stuff as well, yeah. but um, following that, because you've dysregulated the entire axis. Yeah, it, precisely. And so hypogonadism is one of them, but, you know, depression is, is so common because, you know, your cortisol is all over the place. Your mood is all over the place. You, you, you got this phenomenon of roid rage where, you know, it's very common in bodybuilders, you know, not just in the gym throwing their weights around, but killing their family members. There's, there's a case of Chris Benoit years oh, ago, yeah. Canadian, Canadian wrestler, you know, he killed his wife and child and killed himself. And there's a lot of suicide eventually, and there's a lot of, you know, there's been stabbings in nightclubs because of guys are on steroids, and it just dysregulates everything. Um, it's, you know. So this is all assuming that the compounds that these people are taking are what it says on the label. And I suppose the other side of all of this is that because sports supplements uh, are, and and especially imported black market stuff are not subject to the same level of scrutiny that pharmaceuticals are yeah. in terms of quality control or um, studies based on safety, safety profiles and cautions and all these kind of things that a lot of the time someone could even be not getting what they think that mm. they're getting. Yeah, certainly because um, a lot of these important substances are not, as you say, under the strict 
and guidance of MHRA, the Medicines Health Regulatory Authority, um, they are black market. They are slipped under the uh, under you know they are slipped under people's noses and just passed around from gym to gym, without having any efficacy profile at all. And yeah, you're right. You know, it's the same as street drugs. So, um, you know, intravenous drug use, which is you know commercially available drugs uh, on the streets. A lot of them people are taking heroin, but half the heroin is filled with cement and you know brown sugar, and <laughs> you know. But the person taking it is none the wiser. They're buying heroin at you know I don't know a few hundred thousand pounds per kilo or whatever the price is, or you know however much they're buying in terms of grams of a bag of heroin. And ninety percent of it's not even heroin. It's the same as these anabolic steroid users. You know, so a lot of them are what we call excipients. So they have a preparation, they have a solution, they have an excipient as well, and then they have the steroid in there which I, I suspect forms 10-20% of the actual makeup of that syringe. And, and there's no guarantee that the excipient is, has a decent safety profile, that it's not contaminated, that it's probably been carried across the country in someone's bum. Like, it's, yeah. So the, this is, uh, the, that is a bit of, and I've, I, so I'm in Newcastle currently. I've heard that as cocaine comes through, like, the southeast of the UK and comes up north. Yeah, yeah, like progressively lower and lower percentages, and so you're getting more rennies and warfarin in your cocaine than um, actual, actual war, uh, actual cocaine. So, um, yeah. so the, the over the last let's say five or ten years, there's been a bigger rise of selective androgen reuptake mm-hmm. modulators and growth hormone peptides and these kind of new wave of of drugs that are not quite anabolic steroids and still stand in a bit of a grey field in terms of WADA and legal um, legal issues as well. So we've got these new drugs that are claiming to be smart steroids, but have very very small uh, track record um, compared to the standard compounds. Have you seen much of those in, in practice, and what do you know about them? Yeah, so uh, I have seen them, but I would say probably only twenty. 30% of people actually have heard of them, the guys who are injecting uh, steroids anyway. Um, they, are, they are novel uh, treatments, so, so something like xanatide, which is a insulin-like um, growth uh, insulin-like growth factor uh, 1 agonist. People are using this, so it's not only, um, you know, is this kind of um, second stage from growth hormone to ILGF, you know, it is the ILGF, uh, so they are taking that as a tablet to boost their metabolism and you know a, a lot of the so-called smart steroids are used by competitive bodybuilders not necessarily the guys you know your tom dick and harry's in the usual muscle gym and i think a lot of them um are you know regulated by the culture so some of the coaches do have access to private blood testing so they are a bit more aware than i am uh, what, what i usually see are the bread and butter steroids the the nandrolones, the stanozoles, the you know uh, clenbuterates, which are you know usually used for fat loss as well, uh, anti-asthmatic agent uh, from later. Uh, but the smart steroids are certainly getting traction, and that's something I'm slowly getting more familiar with. But you know, kind of a, a growth hormone peptide agonists and kind of selective androgen um, receptor modulators as well. And even people are using I've heard uh, stuff like um, ramipril as an ACIP. So they are they, they are getting very patchy endocrinology nuggets from different bodybuilding forums and, and uh, putting it together and saying you know what, I'll take the drama product's going to help with you know you know this and that. I just think if there's if there's something to learn in a patchy way, it's not endocrinology. <laughs> so it's one of the more complex 
medical specialities and uh, I think people are mixing that with a bit of bro science and you know anecdotal evidence really so you know my friend did this he put on this much size and he only cycled for six weeks so it must work and obviously not knowing and not controlling for confounding factors at the same time well the you know a lot of these new things especially the the selective um, androgen modulators and and GHRPs and things like they they seem to be more popular in the states as well and there's a lot of kind of pro longevity and health guys that are recommending them as well um kind of well not 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 doctors these are kind of like biohacking type people well, the wellness gurus and yeah. with, their, with their rocket coffee and all these things it, <laughs> yeah precisely like the kind of guys that are blending butter into their coffee and it's like these things may well be fantastic and actually on paper they look brilliant like and i've been i've been tempted i've seen them and thought like you know what these look really great but then there's always the thought of the the track record is so small and from the preliminary data we're seeing it looks like psalms particularly cause they still cause shutdown whether it's as much or 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 less so than steroids like they're not the perfect drug and so um i think really in terms of trying to optimize performance and 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 health it's probably as you said like if the risk that you're taking is at competitive bodybuilding level and you really need to enhance your performance at all costs and you're willing to take those those risks because you're really stepping into the unknown not only with your own body but also if something goes wrong and you've got to see someone like yourself like the the number of the the number of patients that are available and the number of the amount of data available on these drugs is so narrow that Mm -hmm. even the experts are still in the dark about how to deal with the complications yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's historically been the case with, uh, you know, with everything as well. Uh, steroids, for instance, the, the the kind of data doctors had in the 70s and 80s was very limited because it was done, you know, very backhandedly. And then when East, you know, East Germany started doing anabolic steroids essentially on a whole scale, read a book, by the way, called Bounce by Matthew Said, which is a Bounce. good adjunct to the yeah, Bounce. Matthew Said is a ex-table tennis champion from the UK. He, he now writes for the Times, but... Uh, interesting book about the pursuit of excellence in you know amongst athletes so athletic wellness and the pursuit of athletic medicine and you know um, aesthetic kind of um you know uh, objectives H- how medicine has been turned on its head when it comes to that and it's a good it's a good adjunct to the netflix documentary icarus which uh, i recommend everyone to watch a really good insight into you know the lengths certain athletes go to to achieve that body and achieve that kind of level of fitness but anyway, going back to the point, so in, in the 70s and 80s, the data profile was, uh, you know, cl- the data collection was quite limited, so doctors knew very little about it in terms of the bread and butter steroids, you know. Now you've got equipose, you've got you've got so many different kind of steroids now and different kind of, you know, pro-hormones and different stuff to take during cruising period, like the testo gels as well, which a lot of bodybuilders use. Um, and now I think we're getting a knowledge gap as well. So even the endocrinologists, there's very few out there who are specializing in sports and technology, um, and that's that's what I've taken on myself, you know, to actually read about this. And uh, I'm even interested in doing a master's at uh, Bart's or UCL in uh, sports and technology because I think nice. applying that to what I see on a daily basis can only be beneficial because I see this stuff only getting more prevalent. So it used to be the reserve of elite bodybuilders. Now uh, I'm seeing 45-year-old construction workers taking steroids because they want to keep up with a 22-year-old. Um, guy at the gym and they want to keep up with Tommy from Love Island 
Well, that's just my gym that I go to. It's just, it's, it's all yeah, forty five year old construction workers with acne and big faces yeah. like that. It's just the <laughs> the standard, um, and yeah, like there, there has I think there has to be more of this because as you said, like people the the, the private sector with the with or the, or the black market with these things, there's always so many steps ahead, or so pumping out new compounds all the time and if you go to the gp and you say i've taken my hcg and my testosterone's not come back up and i'm not getting erections anymore and i feel like most gps are going to be like well look you you've you've taken something that's completely off label completely niche and this is a you know you're kind of on your own here <laughs> and right so so that again goes back to the initial point we made in the, at the beginning of the talk about that golf and when whenever you've got a golf you've got something called a market pull okay so so the market pull is all these all, online supplement companies and bodybuilding forums and you know these kind of you know um uh, wellness gurus and and pseudoscience proponents who are you know, you know, using the market pool to to lure, to lure a lot of these, uh, let's say, recreational bodybuilders into their kind of entrapment of yes, I will sort you out with blood blood tests. I will sort you out with, you know, a twelve week supply of this. Um, with and, and the GP is none the wiser. And even then, it's such a disconnect and disengagement and, and kind of a dis um, you know, the patient feel disenfranchised when they go to when they go to their GP because GPs have you know. Bless them, not not much of a clue about what they uh, what they're taking, and that again just uh, um, you know uh, let's say you know reiterates their point that um, uh, you know we are we are with the right people who are these online um, guys or the guys in the gym who are who have been doing steroids, so they become some somewhat of a pseudo expert in that kind of uh, field. So we you know it's, you know technically this is our reserve. We should as doctors be you know, advising people about cyst steroid use, it doesn't necessarily mean we agree with it, it just means we're advising them on when to stop, when to start, when to, you know, go on replacement therapy, when to get their liver function test checked, when to get the ultrasound of the liver, when to even get echocardiograms, because, you know, that's important. You, you get hypertrophy of the left ventricle, so the main pumping outlet of the heart gets gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you can quite easily die in sleep with that. So the, that's a really interesting point, that by not taking ownership over these things, We've create we've 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 failed the patients in that sense because then it it ends up putting the pseudo experts into that position whether they mm. want to be or not but actually they you know there's a, as you said there's a market pull to do so so and then the doctors are stepping back and it's like actually now the problem is being perpetuated and just by saying we don't advocate this yeah. that's not enough or or to try and like see no evil. Um, doesn't mean that the the activity stops you know i've yeah. i've got a very uh, religious family member that's um that's very anti-abortion and believes that doctors or the nhs shouldn't just shouldn't offer it as a as a thing and the the problem there is is not that yeah like what, whatever your thoughts on abortion are it's it, it's not about like we just shouldn't yeah. offer it because the market force is still pushing towards that being an activity and if you if you don't cater to it it pushes it into dodgy guys with a um coat hanger in a back alley like yeah it's like you know putting your putting your hands over your eyes and you know digging your head in the sand and you know it's not gonna make the problem go away the problem's still gonna persist and it's much better to be in our hands whether that is you know 
contraception, smoking, abortion, anabolic steroids, which much better to be in our hands as professionals with, with integrity and scientific knowledge than it is to be in the guy who's, you know, a PT who's got a few clients and has also taken steroids himself and, you know, has got clients who are taking steroids and he will just give anecdotal evidence here and there uh, about his you know, time as, as a steroid user and will to advise you, you know, very kind of vaguely about what to get checked and, you know, um, you know what blood test to have. We should take ownership of that and avoid that black market, black market proliferating. Because I see it only prolif- uh, proliferating because with Love Island now twice a year, with you know the male body image being such a big issue, people will take more and more steroids. Well, I, I really hope within the next couple of years, with the rise of biotech and tracking devices and blood test, um, you know, blood test services and things, that we can hopefully start to crowdsource this pool of data and start to really advance medical science in a way that um, gets all of these these tracking variables of, of people who are interested in health optimization, pooling it together and create and being able to draw out trends from the statistics. Um, yeah. But I guess that's something that would have to be a, a, you know quite a big initiative for people to start tracking yeah. these things. Of course, and I think that for that to um, take place, you need high-level thinking. And I think um, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, um, I think only yesterday on Monday suggested 140 um, million pound boost for uh, digital health and AI in the NHS. So oh, uh, that's cool. so obviously conservatives have got another four years in government as of January. So you know that's you know that's a good time to start that now. Um, so I think something good can come from this from this government. And it, a digital health is the next frontier, and that's something I've started. You know, with my company Endurance. Uh, our, our website will go live tomorrow or, or, or on Thursday. Nice. But I'm client base essentially, and I've got um, data and you know uh, parameters uh, in place for you know from them, which they feed back to me their calorie intake, their steps taken, what cycle they're on, what day of the cycle they're on, their sleep pattern as well. And a lot of these bio what we call bioinformatics are available quite easily by smartwatches, but by phones, by you know tracking apps like you know My Fitness Pal on um, uh, you know. Um, like a smartphone. So I think pooling that is certainly the, is certainly the next frontier. I think a lot of the time people are getting their blood checked privately, sending the printout to the GP. GP has no clue about that. And, you know, and so with endurance, what I'm trying to do is get, get all, pull all the private results. We, you know, we're doing our blood testing as well. We're sending our kids to people's houses. They're sending it back to us. So we've got essentially a good client base. And a lot of it is in the so-called muscle gyms where people are uh, you know, kind of a backroom garages where it's, it's you know the, the, it's freezing cold and you're paying 15 pound a month for these muscle gyms where everything's 30 years out of date. They're the gyms which you know track the most problems really. Well, it's yeah, it would be ideal. Like all the data is there just to be pooled and like it is actually it's my wet dream for Apple to buy the NHS database and just sort it out and just you know because considering it's all there and rather than having to make the patient yeah as you said carry a bit of paper to the gp and then that get even with it like i mean maybe we're going off topic even within the same hospital or within the same trust trying to get all the data shared between um between departments for for the same patient is sometimes close to impossible and so it would maybe need a real a real restart maybe companies like maybe sorry maybe countries like uh, sweden and norway are going to be the the frontiers of this because they they always are, um, but yeah, like it it's 
I think it, okay. if it does take off, it could be this just exponential improvement in the advancement of medical science, because suddenly we have so much more data and trends on a massive scale that we can then just like run studies on and get to some great yeah. conclusions. Yeah, certainly. And, and I think, you know, the quicker we collect the data, the quicker we can analyze it, the quicker we can actually prevent diseases from occurring. So if you've got, for instance, going back to the point about bodybuilders and steroids, we've got sufficient data there about liver function and how it, you know, how your liver function will decline in the next, you know, six months taking steroids, how your kidney function will decline. Um, we've got we've got trackable biometrics here, haven't we? And we can prevent the onset of diabetes. We can prevent the onset of chronic kidney disease. We can prevent the onset of you know liver, uh, liver fibrosis by tracking three to six months. A lot of these guys were taking ergogenic aids, and that will prevent twenty thousand pound a year cost on dialysis. Uh, you know, twenty thousand pound a year cost on you know. Uh, you know, all these you know, diabetic medication, for instance. It's a so no-brainer, like, isn't it? Just just to integrate a database. It is. you've yeah. solved all this. So my pals are doing a great job at Medichex, um, you know, a Nottingham-based company. And I think a lot I'm of that... Big fan of Medichex. Yeah, because they're based in Beeston, which is not far, far from where I live. And I, I'm, I'm quite a good friend with Sam Rogers, who's um, the main GP there. Um, but, you know, we're trying to go a step further now and actually, you know, uh, target the niche of bodybuilders. Because I think that is going to be a big, you know, because there was a BBC documentary, about 20 to 40% of people take it. Obviously, these are very, very, you know, the kind of interval ranges is quite huge, 20 to 40%, but we don't exactly know how, how many people take it because people have taken it and then are going to take it in two years' time. But the active population, it's very common. And I think, you know, that's, I don't know, one or two million people, really. That's a lot of people who are going to take anabolic steroids. So, you know, if we can slowly gather the data for them, put it in a database, obviously all encrypted and all, all, all confidential, we can certainly start picking up trends and treating people earlier before they have their you know, uh, triple artery bypass graft at uh, age 35. Yeah, exactly. Like being able to preempt those things by looking at the trends and seeing when are the points where complications start to kick in and how can yeah. we start to then reverse engineer that and stop stop it from getting to the point where they need dialysis or, or bypass crafts. Yeah. Because it, it's a simple, you know, something as simple as it's a BMP, you know. Um, uh, B-type natriuretic uh, peptide in, in um, you know in heart failure. So me and you, you know, it's usually normal. In West African football, it's quite high. In bodybuilders, we're usually usually Caucasian. It, it starts off normal, but then exponentially rises, and that is essentially a precursor to full-blown heart failure. And you know, because left ventricles pumping, 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 the hemoglobin size, so you've got a very high afterload as well. And you know. This is getting into quite a deep physiology now, but because you're a doctor, you know, so they're essentially pumping, you know, treacle around the arteries, uh, you know, because it's so thick, hematocrit is so high with a high hemoglobin, which is blood thickness and blood levels are very high because of anabolic steroids, especially growth hormone. Growth hormone is an anabolic agent which will precipitate the growth in, you know, in, and cause end organ damage in many organs, really, if you take it in an uncontrolled fashion. Because, you know, growth hormone is secreted from the pituitary gland. In a control fashion, we need it. It is pulsatile. It's pulsed out when you need it. After a workout, you know, it's pulsed when you need it. After a squatting session, etc., it's pulsed when, when, as and when you need it. Even after stressful events, it, it is secreted. But when you're taking it exogenously, it's constantly there. So hence why you get the horrible blood numbers. Even this morning, you know, I had a couple of clients whose blood numbers are terrible. Hemoglobin is very high. 
metric is very high as well. So essentially what's happening is, going back to the PMP point, you know, PMP is a precursor to left ventricular damage. And, you know, if you're seeing a, a trend, you can quite urgently expedite a referral to cardiologists and they can do echocardiogram and put them in medication to bring back their um, left ventricular function. And the second, as a doctor and uh, as an exercise professional, you can advise them to deload their training. I see. And these, you know, and, and these are parameters, aren't they? We can use day-to-day practice. Why can't I do that with a tablet at the at the bedside, or sorry, at the at the at the gym side with a patient who's doing squats and his BMP rising to almost a thousand? I can say, look, just deload, do some cardio, bring your BMP back to normal, and then you know we can refer to a cardiologist. And that's something which I think will take trend in the next five ten years. Well, it, and it could even be built into the apps in the in the sense that once you have enough data, like and you send you have a, a centralized database where. You send off the bloods, and the, the app just gives you an automated notification saying, "Hey, your BNP's gone slightly above the reference range. We recommend that you deload your training a bit, or that you see a GP if it gets to this point." Or what, you know, so it can then be almost like the feedback loop can be contained within the app, and and then you've you've put the power back in people's hands. Um, final question for you, Asif, is uh, we, you've pr- you've made a pretty good case for like if you're going to use these substances, it's at your own risk the 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 medical field is is not hasn't caught up with the more kind of novel stuff and you're at risk of these complications without really having a um a way to recover the um the complications if they happen um what would you recommend for because it it, obviously the 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 main reason that people would take steroids particularly non-high-level competitive bodybuilders just people who the average gym bloke who wants to gain a bit more muscle what are the biggest low-hanging fruit that you see with people who have maybe started, but actually they could have squeezed out a lot more gains naturally? Um, and also, what are they really seeking with this? Because it seems like the, one of the biggest industries is testosterone optimization. people trying to optimize it, but sometimes not really thinking that actually it's not the testosterone really that they're interested in. Like if, and we often tell people, like, if we have a client who's worried about their testosterone, and we're like, well, okay... What if you, if your blood level of testosterone went up, how would you be any better? How would you feel any different? Like what you're really after here is more muscle and less fat, not necessarily the serum testosterone value here. So what do you see in terms of options for people who are, who are convinced now that like actually using these aids carries its own risks and I want to just be able to maximize my physique naturally? What, what so are your Yeah, so go back to your first point. Well, testosterone. I think that's important because you know a lot of people who don't have insights will just say t- testosterone is just a number. It's either ten or fourteen. But you know it varies. It's highest in the morning, hence why you get morning erections. It's highest. It peaks. It's diurnal variation, just like melatonin, just like your circadian rhythm, just like your cortisol. It rises in the morning and it falls after a meal. So you know, your testosterone could be twelve uh, before a big meal. Then it'll be ten or eight after a meal. It, it can really vary quite. A- you know, 40% variation we have seen before. And also, testosterone, you know, a bit like calcium, you have to look at bound and unbound testosterone, okay? So, and, and a bioavailability. So, you know, uh, not to bore you with the um, kind of uh, biochemistry behind it, but you could have very high testosterone levels. You could, you know, have 20, for instance. But bioavailability could be three or four, and you're getting depressed, you can't, you've got no libido, can't get early morning erections and you've got no strength and you know because you're fat and you're losing muscle okay but oh doctor my test levels are 20 
But yeah, the bioavailability is very low. And, and also, you know, you've got to look at chronic stress as well. So cortisol, as we know, will drop your testosterone. will drop it. So there's nothing wrong with your HPA, your hypothalamic pituitary axis. It's your cortisol is chronically elevated and you've lost that dynamic variation. So at 9 a.m. where you've got the peak of cortisol, you're also chronically elevated because you're working 80 hours a week as a banker. Stop, the, you know, reduce your hours, reduce your alcohol, increase your exercise, your test will increase by itself naturally. And there's, no, and there's no need for replacement. So a lot of people have made an industry from this, especially a few men's health clinics. So that's why we always offer you know, expert advice, you know, on, on our board, we've got endocrinologists who will look at your results and, you know, suggest repeat blood testing over three days. Anyway, uh, let's just, by the way, that was just talking about testosterone as a, as a, just a pure level. Going back to your point about low-hanging fruit, um, sorry, what was the question again? So, like, what, what can someone do naturally in terms of the low-hanging fruit with the people that you see? Because I, I, I certainly see clients that are, you know, a, a kind of simple example is someone who came to me, his, his physique was really average and his body fat was like 18-19%, um, but he was using 2.2 grams of testosterone a week, uh, 5 IUs of GH every day, no cycling, and um, barely training, diet was terrible, just going out drinking a lot, like not really sleeping much, and, and it's like... The, the amount of cost benefit that you're getting here is so yeah. terrible. Yeah, exactly. Because you know you're spending all this money on all these supplements, and you're still di- you're still not dieting, you're still not you're still not looking up yourself in the gym. So my if it, if it's a young client, you know, 25, 30, you know, under 35, as you know, testosterone, you know, rises in twenties, at 29, 30, it plateaus till your late thirties, and forties it declines by a few percent every decade. Same as height does as well. So if it's a young guy in twenties and thirties. There's no reason why they can't achieve their optimal physique without the use of any ergogenic aids. There's no reason why. Okay. One thing is a caveat to that: it's it will take you a long time. It will take you look at the years. Okay, two years minimum, eight to ten years if you're a casual trainer, uh, you know, casual um, gym person. But you know, you're looking at two years. Whereas with steroids, you're looking at one cycle, two cycles, for three, six months, you can achieve a very good physique. You know, high muscle percentage. You know, you know, very chiseled physique, you know, hypertrophied muscles with very little body fat. You're looking at 12, 10% more with cycling, appropriate cycling, diuretic use. So the longing fruit is there. You know, I want to look good for a Marbella in, in June, doctor, and I've got four months to get there. You know, so a lot of them will go on other cycles because they would have heard anecdotal evidence from the guys in the gym saying, guess what? I've lost so much weight. I've got so much muscle with this and I'm better at training. My recovery is less, sleeping better. And I'm more aggressive. I can lift more. I'm stronger as well. So low-hanging fruit will always be there. But I think we have to educate the public that you know all these bodies which you see on TV are you know not necessarily attain. Uh, you know you can't, you can't 100% get that body, but you can be the best physique you know that you could possibly be without without the use of these steroid um, aids. Cool. Well, that that is a that is a great message, and it's been fantastic talking to you because uh, I think there's a there's a huge amount of just untapped potential with you know nationally with ai with with data collection with the medical field as a whole and uh, i'm looking forward to seeing the trends of, of how things improve over the next uh, five to ten years yeah certainly no i think uh, one thing to watch out for is the um is the um uh adam database so yeah which is part of UCAN, so uk anti-doping agency they've got a database for kind of um ergogenic steroids, so that's going to increase in the next one or two years. So 
you know, wider and you kind of work quite closely together to actually put a lot of substances on the ban list. So, you know, going back to the beginning of the talk, cryptoheptidine, it could be on the ban list in a, in a few months' time. So all is changing, all is changing. Um, so I think, you know, that's part of it, data collecting system, being a bit more um, insightful as to what people are taking. And it, a lot of it's here, so if we hear in the gym and then we can research it as well. But increasing the, the database, first and foremost, is, is the biggest step. Uh, we've got some, you know, hard endpoints to collect. But it's been yeah, to I, I think it. so. Because also when you've got these, like... Um, when when there's a delay between things coming between things being banned, there's often a case of like, oh, let's just create a slightly different isomer of this of this pro hormone or of, of this and that, and they are completely untested and may have un- yeah. uncontrolled complications that, uh, yeah, just by chain. But then it suddenly becomes legal, and I mean, I'm sure you you saw the uh, the MCAT um, phase like probably twenty twenty eleven twenty ten. Of like being sold as a plant fertilizer and everyone hammering it and just like it, it's like guys if you if you're going to be taking an amphetamine like at least take the one that's got that's been around for thirty forty years not just some completely new one. Yeah, no, precisely. And I think you know, as, as doctors and healthcare professionals, we need to be up to date. We need to be well read on this uh, topic because eventually, a lot of the patients when they come off. When, when they come off the ergonomic aid, they'll come back to us, you know, for advice. So we need to be, at, or, or even during their course of treatment, uh, they'll come to us for compli- with complications. So we need to be well versed in side effect profile, efficacy, and when to affect, you know, safe, you know, safe use. It's not, you know, if, if, if you're seeing a teenage girl, for instance, at the doctor in clinic, and she's, you know, having, you know, you know, in a dangerous kind of sex or something. It doesn't mean you're promoting it by giving a contraception. It just means you're promoting safe use or safe sex or safe steroid use or safe needle sharing, etc. There are companies out there like Juice, Juice Clinic in Sheffield, that are doing some quite good work. I believe they've got a pump clinic in Manchester as well that are doing some good works. But these are far and few between. We need to make it the duty of every doctor to understand, you know, basics of kind of, you know, um, ergogenic use because they are going to become common I, I don't think we're far away from getting to a point where probably half the population will be using them either to lose weight or to gain muscle yeah exactly so so we can't be putting our heads in the sand got to at least educate ourselves on being able to mitigate the risks for our patients and uh and seeing where we go from there cool Certainly. well i hope filming with bbc goes well this afternoon <laughs> pretty busy day for you yeah and it's a busy day for me i need to refuel now with coffee and prayer Nice. So that, that's my ergogenic aid. That, that's your ergogenic aid, ideal. Um, so how how can we find out more about you and um, and, and how what's what's the name of your business and how can we how can we yeah, access so, you? Yeah, so find us on all social media, so Facebook, Twitter, and um, Instagram at Endurance UK, uh, and they can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram as well at Doctor Asif Official. Doctor Asif Official. Cool. We will put that in the show notes for this podcast, uh, as well Thanks. as the as well as the clinic if you are around Nottingham. Cool. Yeah, good. So, fifty miles within Nottingham, we do home visits, and you know, keep you up to keep you, keep you up to um, you know speed with your wellness goals. So, give us a follow. But Yusuf, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. It has, even bro. Be- even better looking in real life. Uh, oh, wonderful. Because every time I see you, you're doing these random handstands, and I can only see I can only see some triceps. I can't actually see your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I, I. I think on on night shifts when uh, when when it's a bit quiet doctor's office just becomes the the handstand room so um 
Yeah, it's been good. Good. Good to see you. And, you too. Uh, good to you. I hope it's uh, you know. Hope you found it useful. But uh, keep in touch. Absolutely. All right. Speak soon. Okay. Thanks for that. Cheers. Bye.